Good morning. Please open your Bibles to James chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and follow along, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of the truth, that we should be, ki- be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Andrew Babb. I serve on staff here as the music leader. But today, we will be looking at the book of James together. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And this section is entitled, The Testing of Your Faith. We're going to jump right in here and see what the Lord has for us this morning. In this passage, we'll see how the Lord intends for us to endure trials. We'll see where our temptations come from. We'll see what is waiting for us at the end of our trials. And through it all, we will see that God's faithfulness in showing us trials of our faith, that he promises us wisdom and eternal rewards by his endless mercy and generosity. It's worth pointing out here that James's writing style jumps around a little bit. He sometimes comes back to earlier points that he made. Some commentators have likened it to sort of like sermon notes that someone just gathered together and put together in the book. But I'm not brave enough to try and reorganize God's words here. So what we're going to do is just take it verse by verse, one by one, and let the Spirit do its work in our hearts of encouraging our souls, convicting us of sin, and stirring our affections for our triune God. Amen? So let's dive in here. So we're looking at James 1, verses 1 through 18. Now, the audience and the context here is important. So Paul is mostly writing to Jewish Christians, likely who are outside of Israel. He references the 12 tribes of the dispersion. And what he's talking to is most likely the scattered church after Christ's ascension. Traditionally, the dispersion term referred to the 12 tribes of Israel in exile. 
But since James's audience is more contemporary, he's likely making a similar reference to the 12 tribes, but with the young church in mind. And this is important because many of these young churches after Christ's ascension have been scattered among the nations, were outside of Israel, and at the time they were in the splits. Some of them were adopting worldly traditions and teachings, and some of them kept the faith. So we've heard it said, you shall be in the world, but not of it. And that's precisely what was going on here. The church was in the culture, but the problem was that too much of the culture was getting into the church. So the overall purpose of this book is to realign its reader with wisdom from above. And this first part of chapter one we're looking at today is focused on getting that wisdom from God, knowing the difference between a trial and a temptation, and keeping our faith during trials that we might be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. For this, we are also promised blessings, the crown of life, and the new birth that comes from the word of truth. James 1.3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So as such, we ought to read this book a little bit like explorers finding a map. Okay, some of us have lost our way and needed to be pointed true north. Some of us were headed the right direction all along, but need encouragement and realignment. And some of us have been holding the map upside down this whole time and are in need of a little straightening out. So let's examine God's word together and let's hear how we ought to receive trials and tests of our faith. So starting in verse 1, James starts here with the typical greeting, elsewhere used by Peter and Paul and also in Jude, and all of them talk about being a servant of the Lord Jesus. All things are brought under the authority of Christ, from James's servitude to his advice that he's giving the early church. And like rushing through a prayer before thanks, uh, a prayer of thanks before a meal, we actually do ourselves a disservice if we neglect to remember that all things are under the authority of Christ. There is nothing created that does not belong to Him and to Him alone. And moving on, there's a lot to unpack in the next couple of verses, two and three, so let's start with the solid foundation. The concept of trials is nothing new. We've seen this all throughout the New Testament and even promised by Christ himself. The Greek word for various trials used here is sort of transliterated as intricate, diverse, or complex and we see the same word to describe not only various types of sins, like in 2 Timothy, but also to describe God's intricate or various or diverse grace that's sufficient for all our needs. So we're promised all sorts of trials, but we get all sorts of grace. God's diverse grace is more than enough for our diverse trials or the many diverse ways that we sin. We have all of Christ for all of life. But James tells us that these trials produce steadfastness. And that's something that we've heard before, always in a positive light. Because remember, at the beginning, he says to count it all joy, which is how the NIV phrases it. So this was something that the church then, and by us uh, extension, us here at CRC today, we're supposed to already know, judging from the beginning of verse 3, where James says, you know that these trials produce steadfastness. We see this elsewhere in Scripture. We're told that those who follow Christ can expect blessings and persecution. We're told to rejoice, though for a little while, while you will have grief and all kinds of trials. And we're told that you'll have troubles, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. This is noteworthy, because if we are to take James seriously and believe that a trial is to be rejoiced in, and that the outcome for a true believer is positive and not negative, 
then one of the things we do need to do right off the top is distinguish between a trial and a temptation. So a couple of weeks ago, John preached from Matthew 4 on the temptation of Christ and talked about the distinction between the Lord's trial for Christ and Satan's temptation of Christ. One, in his sovereignty, was allowing a trial to take place that his glory might be on display, while one, in his hatred of God, was tempting the Son of Man. We must never forget that Satan is the father of lies. His primary job description is to accuse the brethren day and night before the throne of the Father. This is his main concern. This is the thing he wants the most, which is to unseat the Lord of history so that he can have a crack at it. And we know from Scripture that Satan's desire is to seek and destroy. Ezekiel 28 tells us that violence and iniquity were found in him, and he was therefore cast down from the heavens. And he sets about his work of first tempting Eve in the garden with the exact same thing that James warns us about, the same thing that James warns us about in verse 14. Desire. Surely you will not die. You'll become like God. James reasons along the same way. Our desires give forth temptation and lead us into sin, and then sin brings death. The KJV says, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The lust or desire that starts the whole process does not come from the Father of lights. For let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Verse 13. Nor does it come from that pile of money over there, that cute girl in the red dress, the power that you wield in the home or in the office, that one steamy book you read, or your neighbor's brand new kitchen remodel. These things are symptoms, but not the sickness. That part comes standard with each of us. As one pastor puts it, the place to look is underneath your breastbone. And of course, the way out is straight gospel. Christ has died for each of these lusts and more, and we who have been brought forth by the word of truth must never forget it. But we'll cover more on that later. Getting back to the beginning of our passage, verses 2 and 3, let's take seriously for a moment this idea that trials are to produce steadfastness, as it says in verse 3. Most of the time, uh, it honestly feels like our trials just produce more suffering, but we're explicitly told that our faith is strengthened when we're tested. So the problem must be with our perspective and not the word of the Lord. Our trials are clearly meant to propel us deeper into our faith in the Lord, though it's obvious that sometimes we can shipwreck our faith at the result of the trials. There's always a temptation. We're either propelled further forward or we can veer off the path into sin. As an example, consider the way we approach our marriages and relationships. In the early stages, you might be attracted to your boyfriend in all kinds of ways, and you're seriously considering marriage. But when you do that, there's some tests or trials he must pass. Is this the kind of man who will lead you with the authority of Scripture as the covenant head? The first few arguments you have are a great indicator. Is this the sort of man who honors his wife as the weaker vessel and not merely tolerates? The first time his masculinity is called into question will be telling. But the end result of those tests or trials is that your conviction to get married either gets stronger or gets weaker. James's point here is that the trials will, in life will test our faith, and the Lord wants us to become more steadfast in our faith so that we may be perfect or mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Verse 4. 
And this is not a start-stop process. It's plain to see in verse 4 that we are to let steadfastness have its full effect. And it reaches completion when we ourselves are complete, lacking in nothing. Again, this is not a start-stop process. This is not passive patience of someone who meekly stands by in life's trials. No, the steadfastness of Job that James references in chapter 5 is an active constancy or endurance. Job had the blessing of seeing the purpose of the Lord by his mercy and his compassion. Friends, we are not meant to merely endure trials passively, but actively remain steadfast. So we can safely conclude that the testing of our faith is not an accidental byproduct of a sinful world, but has been designed with purpose to strengthen our faith and make us steadfast. Now, I do think it's worth noting here that your garden variety of uh, things gone wrong, a flat tire, busted AC in the middle of the summer, that sort of thing are not quite what James has in mind here. Um, Those things certainly can test our faith and God's provision in a sense, but we're talking about more significant trials that tempt us to abandon our faith altogether, to give up the sufficiency of Scripture, to ignore Christ's character and teaching in favor of those sins that entice our hearts. Verse verse 4, we're told that these trials are meant to be endured to the end, and we're supposed to count it all joy Because at the end of our lives, we want to be lacking in nothing because the Lord has finished the work he began in our hearts. We don't want the tares to be ripped out prematurely, to borrow the illustration from Matthew 13. We don't want that to be ripped out early, lest the wheat be damaged when it's harvest time. Rather, we want to endure to the end as Christ did for the joy that's set before us. There is something to be gained in our trials and to exit them too soon robs us of the fruit that God intends for us to bear. We're told that steadfastness will produce perfection or maturity so we'd be lacking in nothing. This is a gift worth pursuing. Let's consider the next section of verses here, 5 through 11. The general theme here is asking for wisdom while avoiding the pitfall of doubt. We're to trust that the Lord keeps his promises and will bestow upon upon us wisdom generously and without condition. So let's take in verse 5, asking for wisdom first. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. The simplicity of God's generosity is worth noting here. He gives wisdom abundantly, and with a single-mindedness is what the Greek word transliterates to. And that refers to maybe either his selflessness or his total and complete generous nature. He's not limited to his generous character, but his generosity is unlimited. Who can give gifts like the Lord? As parents, we love to bestow blessings upon our children. We love to give the extra scoop after ice cream after dinner. We love to give biblical counsel and encouragement after a season of discipline. We love to encourage and praise them for God's work in their lives. We love to take them on trips to the zoo and the constant reminder that they are a gift from the Lord. But the Father of lights outdoes us all with his generosity and giving wisdom. And what a glorious thing that is. God gives generously without finding fault in us, without chiding us for past mistakes. There's no duplicitous generosity that makes demands first and then later reminds us how much we owe him. He is the sort of father that does not remember our sins. Of course, this kind of free grace is the thing that we, just like the Pharisees, love to receive. We often hate to give it out, right? 
How good is it that God does not treat us this way or withhold his wisdom from those who ask in faith? In the next small section of verses 6 through 8, James addresses the issue of doubt, the pitfalls that come with it. Uh, There are two general effects of doubt that we see here, being double-minded and being unstable. So the first effect, being double-minded. This actually doesn't mean being two-faced or duplicitous, even though I've already used that word a couple times. It's not like someone who is double-crossing and betrays, who says one thing but really means a different one. Rather, uh, the Greek word here is more uh, akin to like of two minds. So it's someone who thinks two different opposing things at the same time. The Greek word is dipsychos, which is probably something that James made up himself, which literally means two souls, and the transliteration is more like of two minds. So the double-minded man has a hard time staying consistent during a trial because he doesn't ever really commit to one thing or another. Or rather, he tries to serve two masters at the same time, and he finds that he can't serve either of them very well. One of the best examples we see in Scripture is the man who tries to serve both, both Mammon and Yahweh at the same time. We cannot serve the Lord God Almighty, the creator of the heavens, and also try to get rich on the side. The love of money will creep into our love for the Lord, and our double-mindedness will get us nothing in the end anyway. So that's the first effect, the double-minded man. The second effect is instability. We have a weather reference here, and we'll have another one towards the end of the passage. So instability, like a wave is influenced by the wind, an indecisive man of two minds is thrown around by his thoughts and by his lack of conviction, much like the people to whom James is writing who are putting one foot in worldly culture, one foot in scripture, the result is often unsound doctrine and astray from orthodoxy. We've all seen churches fall away from the sufficiency of scripture. But long before that happens, the leaders of the church probably had two minds about them, one rooted in scripture and one rooted in the world. One mind that affirms God's truth and one that makes room for man-centered philosophies. And long before people will even tolerate teachings outside of Scripture, their minds must be softened. They must lose their conviction for what is true. Only then will they start to drift as the winds of culture blow them about. So suffice it to say, the stakes are quite high here. We can't afford to be double-minded or unstable. We need our wits about us, which means we need to understand God's word. This is why we gather each Sunday to worship through the word and why we'd gather together once more in smaller groups to discuss God's word and then why we gather as groups by men, by women, by youth to further sharpen our minds. We can't get enough of God's word. Some of us have been known to sneak in a few extra Bible studies as well. So let's ask ourselves, do we doubt God, the giver of all good gifts? Or do we ask for wisdom and faith, confident that he will deliver? Will we have two minds instead of a singular focus and allegiance to our Lord? Will we stand firm on his word or be tossed about by the winds of cultural wisdom? The world makes promises to cure, but it has no power to forgive. There is neither prescription nor practice in the world strong enough for sin. We must not confuse the symptom with the sickness. Like we said earlier, the way out is straight gospel. It will be the righteousness of Christ that redeems us, and nothing else. In verses 9 through 11, we now come to a section addressing the rich man and the poor man. Remember I said that James sort of hops around in his writing a little bit. 
Both are called to boast, and some translations say rejoice, which ties back to James's earlier comment or com- command to count it all joy. The important thing to note here, I think, is that the perspective is eternal. Both the rich man and the poor man will fade with the grass and the flowers, but their inheritance is kept for them by the Lord, who chose to give them a new birth through the word of truth, that they would be a first, uh, kind of first fruits of his creation. Now, elsewhere, we do see commands for the poor to rejoice in his heavenly treasure and for the rich man, rich man to be wary of growing too attached to his worldly wealth. It's not explicitly written here, but it's not wrong to infer that teaching. Again, the rich man and the poor man here both are told to keep an eternal perspective, which is where we're going to leave it today. However the Lord has blessed you, may we always remember that our inheritance is being kept by the Lord for us in heaven, and that both the struggle of poverty and the intoxication of riches present opportunities to give in to temptations that displace the goodness and sufficiency of our God. In other words, there's a ditch on both sides of the road. And we know from 1 Timothy, we don't actually need money to lust for it. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. 1 Timothy 6, verse 9. The vehicle by which we acquire wisdom and keep an eternal perspective is simple. It's prayer. How are we commanded to communicate with God and in whose name do we do it? Well, we pray to God the Father through Christ the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, this is a powerful tool in our belt. And here, we are promised results. Far from the promise of wealth and an easy life, our shepherd promises us wisdom to sustain us and heavenly rewards for a race run with endurance. Remember, he gives generously to all and without approach, without reproach. Let us ask and frequently for that wisdom and those blessings. In verses 12 through 18, James is teaching on the promises of God for those who remain steadfast under trial and who withstand the test. Now, in this section, we see a repeated theme of forward motion or or, or progress. In verses 2 to 4, we're encouraged to withstand trials of various kind and the testing of our faith because it will produce steadfastness and maturity or perfection. And here in verse 12, we see that the man who is steadfast in a trial and withstands a test is what? He's blessed with the crown of life. In both verses, there's a progression by faith. One way of looking at it is that we're receiving the reward or the blessing for our maturity. And so taking our passage as a whole, at least so far, verses 1 through 12, we can see a blessing when we remain faithful and a curse for being unfaithful. This is a pattern that we see repeated in the Old Testament. God promises Israel covenantal blessings and provision if they'll keep his commandments and obey his word. And we see covenantal curses and discipline rain down upon them in the form of wandering the desert, godless kings and rulers, and idol worship. The same is true here. The curse of sin works out evil desires in our hearts and brings death. But the blessing of God is on the one who resists those temptations and stands firm throughout their trials. The blessing here is not being delivered from the trial itself, but the promise that we will emerge the other side more faithful and steadfast than when we started it. This word for blessing is the same one we see applied to the poor in spirit. Quote, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5. The crown of life is also used in a few other different contexts. It's described as going to the victor, crown of life as the prize at the end of the race, 
as the shepherd's reward, even as the prize for the church that is faithful through persecution unto death from Revelation 2. So if you love the Lord and are faithful and steadfast through trials, not doubting, but asking him for wisdom, then this promise is for you. In verse 13, James also clarifies something important, the difference between a trial and a temptation, which we touched on earlier. If the word of God is true, and we believe it is, then temptation comes from within our own hearts and is born of our own evil desires and lusts. A trial is something sovereignly appointed by the Lord and has the goal of producing steadfastness, has the goal of growing our faith, making us mature and complete, lacking in nothing, and finally it blesses us. On the other hand, giving into temptation brings only death, again, blessing and curse. So in a very real sense, there is an opportunity in every trial to be tempted. So the Greek word for trial and temptation here have the same root, it's true, but James is using it in two different contexts. To borrow a familiar example, all rectangles are squares, but not all squares are rectangles. In other words, not every temptation may be viewed as a God-ordained trial. It just isn't. But every trial certainly contains a temptation. To borrow a more literal example, a man caught in a jobless season, mounting bills, Children, whom he must teach about the Lord's faithfulness, is certainly enduring a trial. He can thank the Lord for what he does have. He can ask for wisdom and provision, and he will trust that he, the Lord will grow him through the trial. But by contrast, a man caught hatefully slandering his neighbor cannot exclaim, whew, the Lord's really tempting me today. No, that came from the hate that already existed in his heart. We are told that God is not tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one with evil. Similarly, similarly, we're told in 1 Corinthians 10 that God does not tempt us beyond what we are able. He provides the way of escape so that we're able to endure it. God is kind to us in our trials. And this is 100% aligned with how James describes God's generosity with wisdom and giving us the crown of life. At the same time, though, the opportunity to sin and to fall away is still there. In the midst of the good garden, there was still the commandment not to eat from the tree. But how often we tend to prescribe things to God that are true of ourselves, forgetting that he is set apart and holy, holy, holy. There is none like him. His ways are not our ways. When we blame ourselves for clicking the link that got us into trouble with pornography, we know that we did it to ourselves. And it would be misguided to blame the Lord our God for giving us an internet connection in the first place. This sort of child's logic seems obvious now, but when Israel suffered in the desert, how quickly did they grumble against the Lord, wishing to return to Egypt? In verses 14 and 15, we're directly told that when desire conceives or captures our hearts, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is grown, fully grown, it brings forth death. Know that there's actually no mention of Satan here, because there's not really any need. The desire comes from within our own hearts. We tend to think in terms of these desires as a little bit more electrifying, like some of the examples that I've given. But let's not forget about the temptations of laziness to read our Bibles, neglecting to give God thanks, failure to pray without ceasing. Like a drug addict with his 100th dose, we have numbed ourselves to the end effect of our sin, death, 
The sin itself is no less effective the hundredth time than it is the first time, but our numbed hearts can hardly feel it anymore. When it's taken root in our heart and conceived, we are on a death spiral until we repent and seek forgiveness. If anyone is outside of Christ, not trusting him for salvation, the Bible says without question that this spiral starts at birth and it ends at death. For behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother did conceive me. Psalm 51. What can interrupt this death spiral? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So let's move on to our last section, verses 16 through 18, wherein we see that God is the giver of good and perfect gifts, and that he gives us new birth in contrast to the sin that produces death. James describes God here as the father of lights. So on one hand, this is a reference to how he's the creator of the heavenly lights, the one who placed the stars in the sky as we sing and we see in the Psalms. Uh, But it's also a reference to the weather. So unlike the sun or the moon or the stars that change their position and cast different shadows, the father of lights does not change. He does not vary. He dwells in unapproachable light, the kind of light that makes Moses' face shine after a few days at Sinai. Like the hymn says, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Just as God cannot be tempted with evil, there is no darkness in the Father of lights. As we get to the last verse, we see that the ultimate promise and encouragement that God gives us is actually the new birth. Where our hearts, the idle factories that they are, must be constantly pruned and the seeds of wicked desire rooted out, God himself has ordained a new birth for us. And the promise is that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creation. This sort of promise is not something that we can wish upon ourselves. We cannot earn it with any amount of human endurance. In fact, the only kind of endurance that can win this sort of prize is done by the God-man himself, Jesus Christ, who endured the cross, who despised the shame so that he could take his place at the right hand of God Almighty. And God promises this to us. We're told here that it's by his own free will. The birth of the Spirit is spoken about all over Scripture, the heart of flesh replacing the heart of stone, the new creation being born again, the law of God being written on our hearts. So without getting into a Calvinistic debate, we'll save that for small group, the original Greek puts an emphasis on of his own will. And the original word is the same one we find in Matthew eleven twenty seven, where Jesus says that no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So just as a child does not choose or decide to be born, this gift of the second spiritual birth is not a choice by us, but a gift from God himself. And we do not need to see how complete, and we do need to see how complete this all is. What is our crown of life? that the Lord gives us after we endure trials, the new life in Christ, made complete when we are with the Father in heaven. By what sort of love do we love him, as it says in verse 12? Well, it comes from the love that God has for us in Christ, which first existed between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have nothing good and no blessing that has not come from the Father of lights above. Let us not forget this. And what is the word of truth that brings us forth? So James doesn't elaborate here, which is unhelpful. 
But if you've read your Bible, you know that the Holy Spirit brings about the new birth, that Christ is the Word made flesh, that faith comes from hearing, and that hearing comes from the Word preached. We see that that which is born of the Spirit is spirit from John 3. And in Ephesians 1, we're promised that when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So if you have received the word of God in faith, if you believe that Christ rose from the dead, and you have repented of your sin by the power of the Holy Spirit and walk in faith and obedience, then verse 18 is talking about you. The word of truth is nothing less than the gospel of salvation. The word of truth is nothing less than the gospel of salvation. And equally glorious is the promise that we are the first fruits of God's creation. This is a reference to the Old Testament law where Israel was commanded to gather up the first fruits from their crops, the very best of their flocks, to sacrifice. And this was a reminder that the Lord kept his covenantal promises to Israel. James's helpful illustration here shows that God will keep his promise to us and he will give us the new birth by the word of truth that we might be a people for his name's sake. If you're here today and you've never fully trusted Christ for your salvation and repented and believed the gospel, if you've been beset by temptations, given into them time and again, if you can't seem to have any sort of victory over them, then take heart. For Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We can be dead certain from Scripture itself that all those who seek will find. All who knock on the door shall find it opened. The gift is free and the promise is forever. Like Moses lifting up the serpent in the desert, all that is required is that you look, repent, and believe. If you are fighting a losing battle with temptation and you doubt that things will really ever get any better, then place your trust in the Lord who remembers, remembers his promises for a thousand generations and who promises the crown of life to all those who love him. For my brothers and sisters in Christ who have been beaten down by trials, take heart in what the Lord has done for us here. He promises wisdom with no strings attached promises water without price to those who thirst, a well that never runs dry. Our God is the living water that satisfies. We sing this all the time. Let living water satisfy the thirsty without price. So as our time draws to a close here, let's consider two points of application. One, God is unchanging and will not turn far more than just understanding the difference between a trial and a temptation. Or understanding the meaning of being double-minded, God's word is full of rich truths to instruct, to encourage, to convict us of our sin, to bring about the peaceful fruit of righteousness, and much more. When we take the time to understand his word in context with itself, we bring out the beauty in his promises. And even in the warnings, there is beauty that's given to us in scripture. There is no shadow of turning with our Lord. And in the midst of trials and temptations, we can rightly turn to the Father of lights. He keeps his covenants for a thousand generations, and he prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. He blesses us with wisdom without measure and gives us every good and perfect gift. Number two, 
The testing of our faith is designed to produce steadfastness, not despair. Do not doubt God's faithfulness. We here at CRC are standing on the promises of God, and we rely completely on the sufficiency of his word, even as though we're in a difficult season looking for a new lead pastor. We will not be swayed by this bump in the road, and we will not doubt God's faithfulness to provide all that we need. For we have not lost our shepherd, nor can he lose even one of his sheep. We will remember the Lord's kindness to us in our own lives, how he has strengthened our homes with fathers who lead and love their wives and their families, how he has blessed our families with mothers who fill their homes with the aroma of gospel fellowship and service as they nurture our children, how he has raised up obedient children who honor their parents and are brought up in the fear and instruction of the Lord, how the Lord has blessed us with three different places for us to meet here, each better than the last. How he has brought forth faithful men with strong backbones to serve our church, enduring trials so that we can be encouraged. How he has brought forth faithful women to disciple the younger women and to emit gospel hospitality and prayer over every aspect of our lives. And how he has given Christ himself as our peace, that we should live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Maybe there's a trial on the horizon for you or you're in the middle of two or three right now, ask the Lord to give you wisdom. Trust that he will equip you with the endurance to keep your faith for him and in him until it's over. Sometimes the storms are short, and sometimes the seasons extend over months or years. Still, our God keeps covenant forever, amen? And we do well to remember that we are not keeping this covenant ourselves, but are being kept by him. Remember the mercy and goodness of God. And let us worship this God together with thankfulness in our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for how you have blessed us with your word. We thank you that we can open it up and have it teach us and instruct us. Lord, we ask that your words here would change us, that we would not be a double-minded people, but that we would be stable, standing on your promises. Lord, we ask that you would use James's words here to convict us, to encourage us, to help us move through trials with faith, not doubting you, asking for wisdom often, often trusting that you will give it to us, knowing that it is not us who perfects us, who grows us in maturity, who makes us to lack in nothing. You do that, and you have not failed, and you will not fail. Lord, let us worship you with thankfulness in our hearts for the rest of this morning and the rest of this week. It's in Christ's name we pray, and amen.